Britain, 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 Great Britain. Ah, but who puts the great in Britain? It's the people, of course, and what beautiful people. Over the years, we've been placing them in the village stocks, throwing rotten cabbages at them, and passing laws forcing them to speak properly. I speak proper English, ain't I? Without further ado, I shall hand you over to your host, Monty Lord. Something you may not know about Monty, he holds a world record in banana flambeing. Sitting in the utter disbelief at the back of his classroom in the quiet Rhonda Valleys in Wales is young Charlie Evans. He is about to be punished for speaking Welsh in his own country. Now, this title may appear slightly misleading, but it was technically accurate, or at least in schools and courts. Cumraig, or Welsh as a language is known in English, has taken an absolute battering over the centuries. For example, during the reign of King Henry VIII, the Laws and Wales Acts were passed in 1535 and 1542. These laws annexed Wales to the Kingdom of England, making English law enforceable in Wales and banning the use of the Welsh language in court proceedings. At the time, over 90% of people in Wales spoke Welsh. Those who didn't speak English had issues getting work, and even found that the Welsh language was suppressed in the education system. The Welsh language remained unrecognised by the courts until the passing of the Welsh Courts Act in 1942, which allowed the Welsh language to be used in courts in Wales if the person speaking it would otherwise be at a disadvantage if they had to speak English. The Welsh Language Act in 1967 further ensured that anyone in a Welsh court could be represented in Welsh. The suppression of the Welsh language wasn't just confined to the courts, it also prevailed in schools. Children would be routinely punished in Welsh schools if they were heard speaking in Welsh. There are actually reported cases as far back as 1798, where Welsh-speaking children would be singled out and forced to wear a piece of wood attached to a rope around their necks. Upon this piece of wood was inscribed the letters WN. This stood for Welsh Knot. Horrifically, the wearers of the Welsh Knot, themselves children, were incentivized to report on other children in their class who also spoke Welsh, after which they could duly remove the Welsh knot from their neck. It would be passed on from child to child. The last child wearing the Welsh knot would be punished at the end of each day. This could be in the form of receiving lashings or even a caning from the headmaster. Evidence indicates that the WN was still used in Wales as recently as the 1940s. This practice of punishing school children with the Welsh knot was mentioned in Parliament's official 1847 reports of the commissioners. These three-part reports, understandably, became the focus of national disgust from the Welsh and were nicknamed the Blue Books. Saying that it wasn't a particularly complimentary inquiry into the state of education in Wales would be a gross understatement. This is a statement from the Blue Book. The Welsh language is a vast drawback to Wales and a manifold barrier to the moral progress and commercial prosperity of the people. It is not easy to overestimate its evil effects. It dissevers the people from intercourse which would greatly advance their civilization and bars the access of improving knowledge to their minds. This continued outside of the school setting into the workplace. There are reports that during the 18th and 19th centuries, Miners who spoke Welsh could lose their jobs. You can imagine the economic impact on an entire family, and even villages as a whole. 
In the 1960s, the Welsh Language Society began a campaign to deface or remove English-only road signs in Wales. Many of the English road signs were painted over with green paint. This eventually led to bilingual road signs along the Welsh roads. In 2016, a new law came into force in Wales which mandated that all signs be in Welsh first, followed by the English translation. This widespread change to bilingual road signs did, at times, have some rather amusing outcomes. For example, in 2006, a bilingual pedestrian sign on the streets of Cardiff instructed pedestrians in Welsh to look left. However, the English translation stated look right. In another case, a sign placed at the entrance to a Swansea supermarket read in Welsh the English translation being I am not in the office at the moment. Send any work to be translated. Someone had not switched off their out-of-office email reply. When the Welsh Language Act 1993 came into force, it officially put the Welsh language on an equal footing in Wales. These laws now ensure that the Welsh language should never be treated less favourably than English. King Henry VIII's laws in the Wales Acts were finally repealed between 1993 and 1995. The 2021 Annual Population Survey reported that 29.1% of people in Wales aged 3 or over were able to speak Welsh. This century has seen a rising trend for new Welsh speakers. In yesteryear, you were very lucky if you were a visiting Englishman in Wales, especially if you were up to no good. As a result of the Glendower Rising with the land disputes between the English and the Welsh, in 1402 the English Parliament passed the Penal Laws. These were a series of laws that severely restricted the rights of the Welsh. One of the very first laws passed confidently stated, Englishmen shall not be convicted by Welshmen in Wales. This even included those who became Welsh through marriage. Wales, such a lovely country. Majestic green rolling hills as far as the eyes can see. Sheep, daffodils and leeks. All that land, so much to go around, but you couldn't own it if you actually lived there. Not if you were one of the locals. Since the death of the last native Prince of Wales, Llewellyn ap Griffith, in 1282, the Welsh had to endure several penal laws after its conquest by King Edward I of England. The Welsh were forbidden from living in borough towns such as Conway and Carnarvon. They weren't allowed the same trading rights, but things were about to get considerably worse for them. Owain Glendower, a lord from the Welsh marches, the areas of England that border Wales, was initially loyal to the English crown and fought alongside the English army against the Scottish in the 1380s. In 1400, he had a land dispute with Baron Grey of Rhythin, who had seized control of some of his land. Glendower appeared to Parliament and the court, but he was ignored. This land dispute spiralled out of control and from that moment on, the Welsh rallied behind Glendower in a Welsh uprising. On the 16th of September 1400, Glendower was proclaimed Prince of Wales. His rebellion against English rule lasted for a further 15 years. In 1402, the English Parliament under King Henry IV issued the penal laws, the Wales Act, the Wales and Welshman Act and the Welshman Act against Wales to re-establish English dominance in Wales and bring an end to the Welsh rebellion. 
Some of the penal laws stated that no Englishman could be convicted by a Welshman in Wales. Another stated that waters, rhymers and vagabonds were not allowed in Wales. Public meetings were also banned in Wales, and Welshmen were no longer permitted to be armed and could not carry armour. Neither could an Englishman carry armour into Wales. Welshmen were also forbidden to have castles except those from the time of King Edward I. Welshmen were also not permitted to take senior positions in public office, for example as a, a Justice of the Peace, Chamberlain, Chancellor, Sheriff, Coroner, etc. The problem is that the penal laws failed to suppress the uprising, and had the opposite effect by fanning the flames and encouraging more Welsh people to join the rebellion. The Welsh retook much of their land and castles. When news of their gains against the English reached the Scottish and the French, they sent additional military support to bolster the Welsh uprising. Despite this military assistance, the English had far superior numbers and greater resources, and by 1409, the English had recaptured much of Wales, forcing Glendower to take refuge in the sieged Harlick Castle. Glendower, however, had other plans, and he escaped into the night disguised as an old man. These penal laws were finally repealed in 1624 under the rule of King James I. Ah, the traveller community. Itinerants, gypsies, known by several different names over the centuries. Wedding dresses as flamboyant as a meringue, fights in the car park, horse and carts, and good old Paddy Doherty. History hasn't dealt a fair hand to the gypsies over the years. In 1505, we saw the first officially recorded gypsies in England. However, they were thought to have come from Egypt, and hence became known as Egyptians. The term later became corrupted to the word gypsies. However, some parish records show that the Irish travellers occupied England before this time. Immediately, they were seen as a public nuisance, with accusations that gypsies were constantly deceiving people, claiming to tell fortunes, committing robberies, and other heinous acts. So, in 1530, King Henry VIII passed the first Egyptians Act, preventing any gypsies from lawfully entering England. It also required all remaining gypsies to leave England within 16 days. If they failed to leave, they were immediately deported. Any property that gypsies had stolen was to be restored to its rightful owner, and the remaining property was confiscated and shared between the Crown and the local justices of peace. Not only was it now illegal to be a gypsy in England, but in 1554, Queen Mary amended the Egyptians Act to make it the first law providing the punishment of death if you were found to be a gypsy. Under the law, gypsies were permitted to leave England and not return. Failure to do so within one month meant instant death. It also made it an offence punishable by the same death penalty if you were found just to be in the company of Egyptians or gypsies. If you fraternised with gypsies, you were seen as no different and treated as one yourself. It wasn't until a hundred years later, in the 1650s, that we see the last recorded case of a gypsy hanged in Suffolk. At the time, other gypsies were transported to the Americas, and in 1783, during the reign of King George III, we had the Second Egyptians Act, which stated that All persons pretending to be gypsies or wandering in the habit or form of Egyptians shall be deemed rogues and vagabonds. This act also made it an offence, even pretend to be a gypsy. The Egyptians acts were finally repealed in 1856. Persecution 
in one form or another sadly remained until the passing of the Race Relations Act in 1976 and the amended 2000 Act, which thankfully provided gypsies, Roma and Irish travellers equal ethnic status in law. In the good old days, it was considered rather naughty to ask a gentleman to pay his bill. I nearly didn't pay a bill once. They threatened to take away my colouring books. One of our great officers of state, the Marshal of England, was initially named Lord Marshal. This title changed that of Earl Marshal in 1386 when it was bestowed upon Thomas Mowbray, Earl of Nottingham, by King Richard II. The Duke of Norfolk is the hereditary Earl Marshal. In the beginning, the Earl Marshal's court dealt entirely with military and naval matters, as well as the arrangement of ceremonies and ordering jousts and tournaments. As time went on, its jurisdiction extended to matters of heraldry. The Earl Marshal's court had the power to imprison and commit people to the Marshalsea, a prison in Southwark. In 1568, in an attempt to formalise the Earl Marshal's court's processes, Thomas, Duke of Norfolk, issued statutes and regulations as to the operation of his court. In today's College of Arms in London, there are a great many abstracts of cases which came before the Marshal's court along with the judgments. These were documented by various heralds at the time and have long since been archived. Over time, the court became seen as an anachronism, due to some of the steep judgments handed down by the Earl Marshal. It gradually lost its public influence. On the 16th of April, 1640, Sir Edward Hyde, an MP and later the Lord Chancellor, denounced the Earl Marshal's court in the House of Commons as a tool of oppression. He acknowledged its previous usefulness and proposed its dissolution, citing incompetence and abuse in several cases. He cited one case where a citizen had been ruined by a heavy fine imposed by the court. His offence was nothing more than getting into an altercation with a waterman who had tried to overcharge him. Angrily, he called the swan on the boatman badge a goose. The matter was brought before the Earl Marshal's court, which rightly held jurisdiction because the waterman was an Earl's servant. This swan on his badge was, in fact, the Earl's crest. The heavy fine was by way of punishment for the alleged dishonouring by the citizen of the Earl's Crest. In another case cited by the House of Commons by Hyde, a tailor had been described as often very submissively asking for payment of his bill from one of his customers, a man of gentle blood, with a pedigree registered with the College of Arms. The customer didn't take kindly to being asked to pay his bill and made threats of personal violence towards the tailor. The tailor responded by saying that he was as good a man as his debtor. His offence was alleged to be an attack upon the aristocracy. He was duly summoned before the Earl Marshal's court and dismissed with a reprimand, provided he, that he cleared the debt owed by his customer. Unfortunately, the common law courts could not be of any assistance, as these cases were outside of their jurisdiction. Some of the cases heard by the Earl Marshal's court include that of Edmund Wythepool, a squire from Ipswich who appeared before the court on the 23rd of May 1598. His offence was offering to hurt a gentleman called Anthony Felton, a squire. The court decided that Wythepool should acknowledge that he had wronged Felton and should confess to Felton that he knew him to be a gentleman, unfit to be hurt or threatened, and that henceforth he was required to maintain Felton's reputation as a gentleman. On the 21st of November 1637, W. Baker, found himself before the court after abusing a gentleman named Adam Spencer in the most opprobrious terms. Baker claimed that Spencer was not a gentleman, 
so the matter should not have been brought before the Earl Marshal's court. Upon investigation, it was found that Spencer was indeed a gentleman. Following the criticism by Sir Edward Hyde, the House of Commons didn't pass a bill to abolish the Earl Marshal's court. The scathing remarks shamed the Earl Marshal, and his court never passed judgment again. Hyde pointed out that more damages had been paid to the Earl Marshal sitting alone in just a few days for the allegations of defamation that had been paid to all of the courts of Westminster during a whole judicial term. Hyde wasn't the only person critical of the jurisdiction of fines levied by the Earl Marshal's court. Around 1764, Judge and MP Sir William Blackstone said of the court, as it cannot imprison, and as by the resolution of the superior courts, it is now confined to so narrow and restricted a jurisdiction, it has fallen into contempt and disuse. So, what have we learned from today's episode? That cats will always land the right way up, the moon really is made of cheese, and not to get into fisticuffs with Ronnie Pickering. Who? Until next week, Toodle Pip! Thank you for listening to Bizarre Laws of the UK podcast. If you've loved this episode, then please take a screenshot on your phone and post it to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever you like to post. Be sure to tag me and let me know why you like this episode and what you'd like to hear more about in the future. That'll help me to know what to create for you.